0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
2: I think what my brain craves most is newness, and one of the things that helps with the podcast is that like, every episode is a different artist, a different song. By doing the TV show too, I got to think about all of those things, plus all of the unique challenges of an, an entirely new medium that I'd never worked in before. From the
0: Ted Family of Podcasts, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks with Rishi Keshe Hirwe about his podcast and TV show Song Exploder.
2: I end up living with that interview and those stories for so long that if I've done it well, by the end I've kind of fallen in love with them a little.
1: A good song tells a story. And behind every good song, there's another story of how that song was born. That is the subject matter of Song Exploder. Every episode explores a single song and goes deep with its creators on where the idea for it came from and how they turned that idea into the song we know and love. Song Exploder itself also has a story. First, it was a podcast, and now it's also a series on Netflix. And the hero of this story is the host of Song Exploder, <laughs> Rishikesh Hirway. Welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Rishikesh, I understand when you were little, your favorite soft drink was orange soda. <laughs> Why orange soda? Because
2: it was not the obvious choice of Coke or Pepsi.
1: Now, did you have a favorite brand? Was it Fanta? Or what was your favorite orange soda brand?
2: No, I don't think so. Because I think I mostly, I only really ever got to have orange soda as a fountain drink. Um, ah. And so I don't know that I actually paid attention at that point to what brand it was.
1: Your father was a food scientist. Your mom worked for Sears. And you grew up in Peabody, Massachusetts, where your parents moved after leaving India. What made your folks decide to settle in Peabody.
2: Uh, well, my dad first arrived in Oregon. He was doing a food science program there, and then transferred to UMass Amherst, and that's sort of how Massachusetts became our home. And then they moved into an apartment in Malden, which is where I was born. And I don't know that I've ever actually asked them that much about why they chose Peabody. Oh, in Massachusetts, we pronounce it Peabody. Ah, oh, puberty. It sounds <laughs> yeah, like puberty. I'm going to
1: stick with Peabody. It sounds more like the award we all want, right? right. <laughs> uh, um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by food scientists, having spent so much of my career in branding for fast-moving consumer goods. Um, I've always wondered what it would be like to either live with or be a food scientist. Did you have a lot of experiments with recipes and things like that? Were you quite an adventurous young
2: eater? So the first job that my dad had when I was born was working for this hot dog company. Um, and it, my mom was a lifelong vegetarian. So he would bring things home from work, but she couldn't eat any of it and wouldn't eat any of it, wouldn't even prepare any of it. And so my dad would be the one who would heat up this like new f- kielbasa or something that, that he'd come up with. Uh, I remember they came out with a... <laughs> It was like a cocktail weenies in sauce package. And you, it was like a boil in bag situation. <laughs> mm, I think it was, they, they were very <laughs> proud of this product. And it was it was so convenient. And you could have cocktail weenies in the sauce. <laughs> so, I, you know, <laughs> these are the kinds of things that I ate when I was uh, six, seven, eight years old.
1: I think it's really interesting that we're just a few minutes into this interview and we've already said the words puberty and weenie. I don't know what that <laughs> means, but but I, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> I understand you first fell in love with music when you heard a cassette your parents had of Lata Mangeshkar, one of the biggest Bollywood stars ever. What about that particular music moved you?
2: Growing up, that was just sort of the background of of our lives, especially on the weekends, my parents would listen to um, a radio show that would air on Sundays where they would play, you know, two, a two hour, three hour block of of Indian songs. But then outside of that radio show, my parents had these cassettes of um, different Bollywood musical soundtracks. That was just what music was for the most part. I think my mom also had like one Donna Summer record. Um, Which one? Which one? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think I'm going to have to get your parents on this podcast so that I can ask them all of these questions about your background.
2: (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that music was just sort of part of my life. But then there was this one tape in particular that I think made me feel my first experience of nostalgia. Mm. And I don't know what I was nostalgic for because all of this was music that was made before I was born. But I understood the feeling as something profound or I don't know I liked it I was I was both a little bit scared of it and mystified by it but but I found myself drawn to it too I wanted to listen to that tape over and over and over again to get that feeling and I don't even know that I knew the word nostalgia just I knew that feeling and and was uh, drawn to it wanted to experience it
1: you first started piano lessons when you were seven years old and your parents took you to a piano shop in the local mall for private lessons can you talk a little bit about how your sister Priya helped you practice?
2: <laughs> yeah, she drew an octave of a piano on a piece of paper so that I could practice. We didn't have a piano. We didn't have a keyboard or anything like that. But my whole family was so you know supportive of me learning music. They all wanted help. And so my sister had this idea. Well, here, now you can actually put your fingers on these pretend keys and you can practice that way and so that was my first piano
1: <laughs> and and did it work did did you become a better player while you were practicing that way
2: it definitely worked I it was the only thing I had to, to use and but it, it definitely helped me understand what I was doing and uh, I mean I only got a keyboard a while after that so for a while, for a long time that piece of paper piano was my piano and uh, my, my parents always dreamt of being able to have a piano in our home, but we never did. But I finally, I have one now. And that was a very exciting day a few years ago when I finally got one here from my own home.
1: And you still take piano lessons. Is that correct?
2: I do. I, I've taken a little break now, you know, for the pandemic. and uh, But for a while, I've, I've been taking lessons again, which has been really nice.
1: How good of player are you?
2: I would say I'm not very good. I, I'm maybe a lower intermediate, I'd say.
1: Your sister also accidentally taught you how to read by playing school with you. And I (laughs) loved reading that because I actually did that with my little brother, too. I I would force him to be my only student. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have pretend names for fake students, but he'd be my student and I would teach him. Because I really wanted to be a teacher when I was a little girl. And and I did it so well that he ended up skipping kindergarten and going straight into first grade, which is one of my proudest moments as a sister.
2: Well, you know, that's what happened to me, too.
1: Really? The exact same thing. You skipped kindergarten?
2: I skipped kindergarten.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's so cool.
2: Although I was one of many students my sister had. It was me and six or seven other stuffed animals. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I in some Barbie dolls. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it was a whole class, but, but yeah. Uh, and when I got to kindergarten, there was a, a day early on when, you know, we had some handout or something and I was reading it to my friend who was sitting next to me and then the teacher stopped me and she said, wait, do you, you can already read that? And I said, yeah. And then she called in the first grade teacher whose classroom was connected. And then they just asked me to read some more of it. And then they asked me a few questions and then they, they asked my parents uh, to come to the school and yeah. And, and then about a week later I was in the first grade.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Now, I know in addition to loving music, I read as a teenager, you used to listen to music while poring over the lyrics and the liner notes and the artwork until you could almost feel yourself living in the world of the artist. Were you making any visual art at that point?
2: You know, I always drew. And by the time I got to high school, it started to turn more towards Functionally making posters and things like that for my band. I was in art classes as well, but I was more excited about doing stuff for whatever band I was in. It was also around the time when I started to realize that my desire to draw uh, didn't quite match up with my skills, you know? Um, In a lot of ways, when I got to high school, I I met so many people who were so good at all the things that they did, and so many of those things were things that I really loved and wanted to do, and I, I got a little bit dismayed to discover that there were just levels and levels above where I was at, um, from kids who were you know my, my same age, I, I started to feel like I had to find my path because I wasn't I wasn't so good as I thought at at, at a bunch of this stuff.
1: So tell us about your first early bands. I know you played drums mm-hmm. in a student rock band and also piano and drums in the school jazz band. <laughs> yeah. So how serious were you about being a musician at that time?
2: I was serious about it in so far as it was the thing that I loved the most. Um, the school had like a drum room, one little tiny closet with a drum kit in it that they had soundproofed um, so, so kids could practice in there. And I would, I would just spend hours and hours playing in there.
1: Yet you studied art and design at Yale University. What made you decide to do that? And after you answered that question, I want to ask how your parents felt about you studying art
2: and design. <laughs> Well, I didn't think that I was going to study art and design until I had already arrived there. When I first got there, I was thinking I was going to do English and philosophy. And that was mainly inspired by a couple of great teachers that I had in high school who had also gone to Yale. They'd gone to Yale for undergrad and they'd gone to Yale for graduate school. And then they'd returned to the high school that they went to, which was the high school that I was going to, in order to teach there. And I... I really loved them, and I, I found them inspiring. I really found their classes enriching, and I thought maybe that was something that I could do. It felt noble and exciting. And then I got there, and it turned out I just didn't love like writing the paper that you, you know the paper that you had to constantly write. Um, while I was there, I also took you know an intro to drawing class because I still loved that and still wanted to do art as much as I could and I I enjoyed that a lot it was also a prerequisite for anything else in the art department at that time I didn't know what the term graphic design was Um, it was only introduced to me in the school catalog you know as I was going through the art class I had just that was I think the most fun I would have was in the weeks before school started reading the course catalog I also played Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, and for me, <laughs> like looking at the course catalog of, of school felt like I was rolling up my own Dungeons and Dragons character. You know, I was picking like which skills do yeah. you want to choose, and which...
1: and what what imagination for the future you could conjure.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I would read, you know, cover to cover. I'd read that that course catalog, and and one of those was um, graphic design classes, and I was like, oh wait, this is the stuff that I was of doing already for the bands that i was in you know the posters and things that i would make flyers in high school and so i took that and when i took that class something just clicked in my brain and i thought this is actually what i want to do this is so much more exciting to me than the papers that i was reading i was really enjoying the the books and things that i would get to read but then having to write the sort of analytical essay which i'd done so many times in high school already too felt like I was repeating myself a little bit but um, the design classes and the the really everything in the art major and the chance to like have to come up with something entirely new that felt really satisfying to me in a way that uh, I didn't know you could kind of get from us you know that you could major in that feeling and and so that's what I wanted to do did
1: you envision becoming a professional designer at that time
2: no I don't think so I'm not sure that I had a coherent sense of what kind of professional anything I could be um I just knew what I loved. I was playing in bands then too, but um i didn't I really didn't know what what that might lead to. I had kind of given up, i think, on this idea that I was gonna go back to my high school and teach, but I hadn't figured anything else out in in the meantime. I did have the sense that like this is a marketable skill too. enjoy in addition to being something that i really liked this was something that you know this was around the time when you know i made my first website in high school and uh and i started doing that more and more and so i knew that there was this sort of budding interest for people who could make websites and i thought well if i can make them look good this is a skill that i could use somewhere in the world
1: before you even graduated, you started your first professional band, the 1AM Radio. Why that name?
2: <laughs> I think you're being generous to say it was a professional.
1: <laughs> well, you, you've, you've recorded albums. You've toured. I mean, yeah. That's professional.
2: I guess so. I think I, I wanted it to be professional, but certainly I think would be a few more years before it could come anywhere close to being considered professional. But yeah, at the time, I definitely wanted it to feel real and not just, you know, like a school project or something like that, or something that I did for fun on the, on the weekends. But in terms of the name, the name really it came from a couple of different impulses. A lot of the people who I loved had these aliases for, for you know, their performing names like Cat Power or um, Bill Callahan performed as Smog. And I, I just, I loved that. And I I think there was a part of me that felt like, if I did use my, my first and last name, you know, and people saw Rishikesh hereway, it might just be some kind of barrier to entry in 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 America, that, or or that someone might misinterpret it and think it was like, I made world music or something like that. I don't know. I, I just knew it didn't, there were a couple of reasons why it didn't felt right. And so then I, so I wanted to come up with a band name and uh, I, I have this need for things to live on multiple levels whenever possible. And when I was little and my mom was working at Sears, she worked nights and I used to go with my dad to go pick her up. And I remember just sitting in the car, listening to my dad listen to AM radio. You know, I wasn't really paying attention to what was on the radio, but again, the sound of it just made me feel nostalgic, even though it was contemporary radio, the staticky quality of it and, you know, and, that you know my mom was wasn't working at one in the morning she we would pick her up, it would be like nine o'clock, but it would be my bedtime, and I would be in you know my pajamas in the car um so by the time I was nineteen, that felt like late at night, you know that felt like it translated to one in the morning, and that intersection between a m radio and one a m felt like something there was something fun in there and a very specific kind of feeling that existed in that intersection between one o'clock in the morning and the AM radio.
1: How would you describe the music you make as one AM radio?
2: I've tried to make a few different kinds of records, but I think they, they all kind of um, tie back to some of those first feelings, you know, of wanting to make something that felt nostalgic and maybe a little bit melancholy and things like that, that they aren't, um, some of them were overtly sad songs, but I think even when the subject matter wasn't sad, I was always trying to make it sound like it could give you that same kind of feeling that that, you know, that Lathamungesher tape gave me or, or that AM radio late night pickup kind of gave me. Something a little bit cozy, something that you missed, some some feeling of longing.
1: Where does that melancholy come from?
2: I think there's something just very romantic about it you know it's been romanticized certainly in a lot of art and I think I'm just like a total sucker for it um <laughs> and I really uh I felt for it hard and in, in everything you know in books and and movies and in music too and so I wanted to just live in that sort of dreamy magical feeling and um and I think it also you know there was a depth to it it was a way to be a teenager making music that felt like I was doing some. I was living, living in the world on some other level.
1: <laughs> Is it true that you tried to make your first album, "The Hum of Electric Air," entirely by yourself—the recording, the writing, the mixing, the producing, and the artwork?
2: I tried to do as much of it as I could myself. Um, definitely, there's there were some things that I recruited others for. There's some there's like some violin and cello, and I think there's maybe one. Part on one of the songs that somebody else recorded, but I was really trying to do it all my, myself. And then, yeah, and then, and then the artwork and the and the photography. Um, it was a chance for me to express all these different parts of who I was in one sort of object.
1: I know, in an effort to support yourself as a musician, you worked as a creative director at Dangerbird Records. You also took a job as a designer at Apple. Mm -hmm. Talk about the experience at Apple. You were there just a few years after the iPod first came out.
2: Yeah, actually, while I was there, I remember the iPod Shuffle came out Mm. um, during those (laughs) few months that I worked there. Yeah. Um, And everybody who was an Apple employee got one, but I was not an Apple employee. (laughs) I was a contractor um, because I didn't want to commit to a job there. But I remember they had a. it was right around this time. They had a Christmas party in 2004 and all the sort of full-time employees left to go to the Christmas party. And I stayed at my desk till like, I keep working on my iTunes designs. And um, and then they all came back and they had iPod shuffles.
1: What was it like working there? Did you learn anything interesting?
2: I learned a lot about Photoshop, actually. You know, there was a big part of the job that involved just sort of like output. There were some elements of design, but there were also elements of just kind of um, production. And so you had to get really fast. And there are so many Photoshop skills that I learned there. You know, this is one of the things in school at Yale, the design program is really about the concepts um, more than it is about any kind of um, execution. You know, there's never a class where (laughs) nobody on the faculty ever sat down and said, here's how you use Photoshop, or here's how you use Illustrator or anything like that. It was just sort of like, well, just make this. And, you know, and it was a matter of how however you expressed your ideas and the tools didn't really matter so that was a really nice experience for me in terms of real hardcore practical learning there, there were a few people there who sat down and just said okay well while you're doing this you can do it this way and you can do it this way and i learned all kinds of things that i i still think about now
1: songs you wrote titled accidents and an old photo of your new lover were featured in the romantic comedy, Save the Date, and on the CW dramas, One Tree Hill and Gossip Girl. You also toured internationally. You released four albums between 2002 and 2011. It seemed like you were right on the precipice of of making it big, but in 2012, you pivoted and tried your hand at film composing. What made you decide to do that?
2: Well, I actually moved to L.A. because I wanted to pursue film scoring. I was already doing the 1AM radio. You know, I'd started that in college. So by the time I graduated, I had had this one feeling in terms of, like, what was I going to do for a living. Um, I remember there was a class where... um, we watched Zabriskie Point, the Antonioni film, Zabriskie Point. And there's this incredible moment where a house blows up and it goes into this extended musical sequence um, with music from Pink Floyd. And I just thought it was so beautiful. And I remembered, I like remembered something that, like a feeling that I'd had, like I'd had it for a long time, but only just remembered it in crystal form at that point, which was, oh yeah, I want to I want to score films. And it was the first sort of concrete feeling of like, this is what I want to do for a job. And then I didn't know how one does that at all. Um, Eventually I moved to LA to try and pursue that with the idea that like I could do my band, you know, which was just me. I could do that from anywhere. So that, that was going to travel with me. But if I were going to do, do any kind of film stuff, I had to get to LA and, and find out what was here. It took a little while, but then I started working as an assistant to a composer and I got a lesson, whether it was the right one or not, I'm not sure, but I learned that when you're starting out, you kind of have to say yes to everything and do the job that's needed. And that was really not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be chosen for the job. I wanted to sort of be asked to do the job because of who I was, not sort of jump at any opportunity and then have to be a chameleon. I had enough success as a songwriter and as a producer and musician, I thought if I pursued that further, then there would be a greater chance that I could prove to somebody, this is what I do, and if you want this, then then you can hire me. So I kind of hit the brakes a little bit on the film scoring stuff, and and instead pursued my band more, more single-mindedly. And then in 2011, my friend made this movie and he asked me to score it. And he was somebody who I'd known forever. He, he made the first music video for my band and it took a lot longer than I'd hoped to finally score a film, but it felt like the right kind of circumstance for it.
1: It seems like that at that point in your life you were struggling with what you were supposed to do, fulfilling family obligations and doing what was in your heart. Um, You stated this about yourself in an interview at about that time. I was the screw-up who was following his whims and going off wherever without much heed to responsibility, either personal responsibility or familial responsibility. Tell me how much that was playing into your decisions about where to go next in your life.
2: Well, it was always hard to demonstrate the validity of my career choices to my family and, you know, to a culture that we belong to where the path I was on was something, you know, unknown to them. So as crass as it was and as meaningless as it felt in some ways, I was like, well, if like there needed to be these kind of external markers of validation to be able to say, look, this was meaningful. This was real. There's some element of success here. And I, I just wasn't getting that, you know, from my music career, scoring a film, even, even though that wasn't like a very lucrative opportunity or, or anything like that, at least it was something that my, my family could understand. They're like, oh, it's a movie. And then, you know, it was going to go to Sundance and they were like, oh, I've heard of Sundance, I think. And that felt legit. And I'd always been looking for that, you know, in a way that like, I, you know, my, my parents didn't know what pitchfork was. They didn't care that I got <laughs> you know, like they, they don't barely know what South by Southwest is if I'm saying like I'm playing a festival they're like okay they've never been to one so um that had been on my mind for a a long time for sure after that movie came out after the next movie that I scored came out I was kind of at this moment where I didn't really know what to do next you know like like you said it seemed like maybe with a couple of these things that had happened maybe I was on some precipice of some kind of success, but I really felt like I had pushed and pushed and pushed for so long to have any kind of sort of real success and, and especially any kind of real success that was sustainable. And that just wasn't happening. And I, and after, you know, i had been 11 years that I'd lived in LA, um, I was feeling really discouraged in 2013. I was kind of feeling like I was like, well, nothing really ever broke for me. And so that year I like, I started a new new music project. I started like a new band basically. And I started, um, I started working on making a podcast and I also started working on like a TV show idea. Um, and all of that stuff felt like in some ways, like a distraction from, from the one AM radio and the distraction from like what was supposed to be my real, my quote unquote real career. But with the, with the podcast, especially I thought, well, maybe this was, could be a way that I could have a day job that was a, of my own making and also un, under my own control that would allow me to pursue music and not have to worry about it as a financial, as my means of, of survival. Because I think that's like where a lot of tension was for me. How
1: did you come up with the Song Exploder concept?
2: Well, I had been listening to a bunch of podcasts around that time and, um, and really liking them. You know, I'd listened to them on, on tour. And I was also, you know, a big fan of, there's a magazine called Tape Op that I really love that's called the Creative Recording Magazine, um, where they would interview a lot of the kinds of artists that I liked listening to about the ways in which they'd record. And there were all kinds of strange and weird ways that people would work to try and get the sound that they, they wanted, you know, outside of like a huge commercial kind of Uh, situation it was people who were like me who were recording at home who didn't have training but who had made these records that I really loved and so getting to read those interviews was really inspiring for me but at the same time it was also print and I wanted to go further I wanted to hear the thing that they were talking about and I thought well a podcast could be a place where you could kind of combine these things you could get to explain these ideas and then you could also hear these things and better yet you could not just hear the song you could potentially hear just the stem of the song, which is just the isolated layer of that one instrument or that one track, uh, which was something I was very familiar with from having made my own music all of these years, you know, the moments where you solo the just the one track to hear what's really going on in it. So that was sort of where it came from.
1: Is it true that Questlove's liner notes were one of the original inspirations for the show? <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, many years before that, I remember he had written in the liner notes for the, for the album, things fall apart. He talked about this drum sound that was specifically when I had been listening to the record, I had really fallen in love with, because there was a, there was a moment where he did what I had been wanting to do, which was make his drums sound like not quite like real drums. Like there's a moment in the record where it sounds like it switches from a live drum kit to like an old, you know, like a drum sample. And it sounds so cool. And then I'm reading the liner notes. And he talked about that. He said, I finally got that sound that I'd been looking for. And, um, and I wanted to know what it was, but that was it. That was all that he wrote, you know, that, (laughs) that, that he had finally achieved it, but I, I needed to know what the answer was so I could do it myself. Um, So I was thinking about that too.
1: Rather than assume the risk of doing all of this on your own, you went to a number of established organizations like Spotify and you proposed that they hire you to make the show for them in house. And, they rejected you they turned you down and you went ahead and did it on your own what gave you the confidence to go ahead and just do it on your own
2: i don't know you know i was i was thinking about something that uh you wrote about one time about the difference between confidence and courage oh yeah <laughs> um and i i don't know that it, which one it was if it was if it was courage, despite a lack of confidence, or if it was in fact confidence, I just knew that it was something that I really wanted, that I would really benefit from if it existed in the world. It had like this no brainer kind of feeling to me. You know, it was really frustrating to me that I couldn't convince people to see this thing and the, the, the worth of this thing, the way that I saw it. And I think there was some part of me that was just so determined to, to just prove to myself that I was right. That I thought, well, I should just do it, and I said, I, I said I would give myself a year.
1: Has Spotify since come back um, with their tail between their legs, so to speak? <laughs> no, they have not.
2: <laughs> uh, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. It's only a matter <laughs> they're of doing. Time. They're doing fine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: How did you raise money to produce the show yourself?
2: It didn't actually take any money uh, at, at first. That was the that was a nice thing because I was just doing it all entirely on my own with what I already had. Um, so the real factor was just convincing people to say yes to letting me interview them and handing over their stems and letting me kind of make the story out of, out of those components.
3: Hey y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In The Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. and the founder of an online education platform called I Love Creatives. And on the show, Puno shares her journey from working on the Call of Duty video game to building both a design studio and a trade school for digital design. Puno has practical advice for taking a thoughtful and iterative approach to career building. Most importantly, this show is actionable. It's about how you can take your own next step in the creative world and into the creator economy. It'll help you discover creative intriguing people who are making a living and it'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In The Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva
1: is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Song Exploder debuted January 1st 2014 and featured Jimmy Tamborello of the synth pop band The Postal Service. Looking back on that show now, how do you feel about that first episode?
2: <laughs> I mean, I I wish I could redo it. I think I could I could probably make a better episode now than I, I did then. But it was the first time I'd ever interviewed anybody. And it was my first time trying to make a podcast. So, you know, I have to give myself a little bit of forgiveness for the first stab at something. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, I look back at my first hundred episodes, and <laughs> I'm horrified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Initially, you didn't want to be in the show at all. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Tambrello did both the intro and the outro for the show that changed when the podcast was picked up by the maximum fun podcast network and the founder Jesse Thorne felt you should have more of a front facing role why didn't you want that initially
2: i didn't really see the point the the thing that i was trying to make was about this artist and their song so i i didn't i didn't understand what i needed to even be doing in there you know it could just it, it could be this perfect clean little package from the one voice of the creator of that music
1: you still edit out a lot of your questions from mm-hmm. the podcast episodes why I love you being in it I love hearing your voice you have <laughs> such a good voice
2: <laughs> well I, I still feel the same way about that you know that I want it to feel like it's not about me or my point of view I want someone to be able to just sort of put it on and say, okay, I'm going to listen to this thing, and and I'm going to hear from this creator. Like, I still think of my presence in the show as being purely functional. The thing that Jesse said was, he said, I think it'll be helpful for people to know that there is an author behind the show.
1: Well, I think you're the soul behind the show.
2: I and I, I guess that's true, but I also feel like you don't see a designer's name. It's not like a painting where their signature is at the at the bottom, on on lots of the most beautiful things that have ever been designed. Um, without some research, you'd never know who designed it.
1: That's changing a bit, though. I know that James Victoria signs his designs now. Stefan Sagmeister often does. Mm-hmm. Paul Rand, I think, did occasionally. Um, in any case.
2: Would you ever? You,
1: um, not my design work, no. Only yeah. only illustrations or, or artwork.
2: And why, why why not? Aren't you the soul behind that design?
1: Um no. And all the corporate design work that I've done, I worked with a team of people. Mm-hmm. And and very little branding actually comes from a single mind. Yeah. And so there's always somebody that's doing the market research and somebody that's doing the implementation and so on and so forth. Even, you know, working on Tropicana, there was somebody that was airbrushing the droplets on the orange. <laughs> So, if you were going to, and there were like seventy-nine droplets or something, everyone was numbered and corresponded to. You know, talk about Photoshop—that was a big file. Um, so, so I wouldn't feel comfortable um, ever saying that I designed that mm. on my own because it was just a real group effort. Yeah. But with illustration or with with artwork, definitely, you know, when I'm the sole creator, then I do feel comfortable.
2: Yeah. I think that's part of it is that like I'm not the sole creator of that show. You know, it doesn't exist without the raw material of that artist's work and their ideas. And so I'm I'm presenting their music and their ideas and and shaping it in a way that I think will hopefully serve the song and the story. But it, I think to, in the same way that you're you're describing the teamwork on branding, it doesn't feel right to say like oh and this is my creation.
3: Well,
1: we can argue about this offline. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you've said that getting the raw tracks of the songs, the stems, Mm -hmm. is the main challenge of making the podcast. I also think it's one of the greatest things in the podcast is having these isolated tracks of voices or drums or sounds. Why is it so difficult to get those things?
2: You know, it's becoming easier. Certainly nowadays, any music that's been made in the last 10 years is usually at some point made in some kind of digital format where the, the tracks have been isolated or something like that. It's, it's easier, but with older songs, it's really, really hard. You know, you have to hope that somebody's digitized that, or if they haven't, you know, that the, <laughs> the tape exists, the original raw tape exists, and then you have to talk somebody into letting you digitize that. That can be really tricky. But you know I don't know that I'd still say that it's the greatest challenge of the of the show. It's a challenge, it's a technical challenge for sure, but I think I realize the the bigger challenges lie in the interviewing and in the like storytelling.
1: What are the challenges in in doing that for you?
2: I think artists can be a little bit cagey about their own intentions. Sometimes I don't don't know If an artist is even aware of their own intentions, you know, like, or where things come from. My hope in the show is to try and like connect the dots between an experience or a feeling or some memory or something that started somebody off on a path, you know, where, where they had that moment where, you know, one day there was nothing there and then some idea occurred to them. And then that got translated into what eventually became a song. So all of the moments in between I want them to sort of chart those, not just what they did, but also the reason why, you know, when they say, well, and so I had that idea. So I turned to the piano and then I played these notes. I'd love for them to be able to explain why the piano <laughs> and why those notes, you know, why that and then why that chord afterwards. But music lives in this place that, you know, so much art does between intention and instinct, you know, something that's, that's actually consciously considered and something that's just felt. And, some artists are really good at being able to kind of take the integral of that curve and find those discrete moments and decisions. And some artists aren't. They're just like, I don't know. That's just, that's just what I did. But for me, the best episode is one where you can really say, I had this happen, and then I did this because I had this feeling, and then I turned it into this sound. Um, and if I can do it, then I feel really good about it. But that's, I think, where the challenge is mostly.
1: Since your launch, you've created nearly 200 episodes. I think you're about to approach the 200th. Mm -hmm. A big breakthrough for you came in June of 2015 when U2's Bono and The Edge joined you for an episode. And you said that once that episode came out, you felt that there was no limit to who could be on the podcast. Has it been easier for you to book guests now that... You have achieved this level of success and now I've also brought the show to television.
2: It's easier f- for sure than, you know, when I, when I first started the podcast, but there are still many artists where, you know, it takes a lot of convincing <laughs> to get them to do it or, or it, it not necessarily convincing them, but, you know, to get through the layers of gatekeeping um, before you can get access and convince, you know, uh, convince somebody that, yes, this is going to be worthwhile and, you know, musicians are so, uh, or the machinery around musicians, I should say, is so carefully demarcated around the promotion of, of a particular track or a particular song or something like that. And if you don't line up precisely with what they want, it can be really, really hard. So, you know, people always ask, like, why don't you do this song or you do that song? And it's like, well, if that artist is not in the mode where they are doing interviews that's not going to be possible. And if they have, you know, say a newer album or a newer song, that they everybody's going to say, "No, you have to be talking about that only. You can't talk about your hit from four years ago. So that's still really hard. And I think that's always going to be hard. Um, but at least I can say, hey, here's a the show. These are the people who have been on it. And it doesn't seem like potentially as frivolous as it might have once seemed.
1: You have an extraordinary selection of guests. Uh, one week you're talking to Grizzly Bear, then another week you're talking to Selena Gomez, then another you're talking to R.E.M. or St. Vincent or Yo-Yo Ma. You've got range. Um, <laughs> how involved are you now in choosing who joins you on the show? Do you still send out the invitations personally?
2: Yeah, I mean, all the artists that are on the show are ones that I've chosen. But nowadays I get pitched a lot more when I first started, I I asked every publicist that I had ever dealt with to send me their press releases so I could see what new uh, releases were coming out. And so I still, you know, I look at that and I will go through and and ask a publicist, you know, is there any chance that this artist would want to do an episode? But I'm reacting to the fact that artists are putting out something new. And that means that they're probably more willing to maybe do an interview at some point. And, you know, and then I, I'm getting I get hit up directly, you know, from people saying, like, will you have this person on? But ultimately it's still whoever I'm choosing.
1: You spend far more time editing than anybody I've ever heard of in <laughs> the podcast world. Um, from what I understand, it takes about twenty to twenty five hours per episode for a show that is usually about twenty minutes.
2: I think that might be a little bit low, actually. I think it's more than 25 hours.
1: Wow. I mean, do you find it tedious? Do you find it interesting? Do you find it inspiring?
2: There are parts that are tedious, for sure. I get frustrated at the distance between what's in my head and the time it takes to actually, like, assemble that in audio. You know, um, I'm like, okay, it should go like this, and then this and, this, and this, and then this, and we should hear that, and then it should be like that. But then to actually go through it, and you're like, okay you move this and then I have to make this cut. Oh, I got to crossfade it correctly. And, you know, oh, I have to clean this up. Oh, the sentence didn't land. It doesn't sound like the end of a sentence. So I have to find a replacement S. So it sounds like the end of a (laughs) sentence, all those things, you know, that's where it can, it can get tedious for sure. But then you finish that little bit and then it sounds the way you want. And it feels like it feels so good that I have to count on that satisfaction to carry me through to the next piece of tedium.
1: It's incredible. I often think about what it takes for Curtis Fox, my producer to edit my show. Mm-hmm. And I just so I feel so guilty. <laughs> he has to go through it word by word by word. And and it's just such a talent. I don't know how you do it. It's extraordinary. Um, I read that in an effort to make sure the podcast doesn't get too geeky. You conduct a mom test. <laughs> what is yes. a mom test?
2: Uh, my mom and my dad both actually um uh, we should give give credit to my dad too would listen to every episode when it came out and my dad still does my mom my mom has passed away recently but my dad listens to every episode and he's so sweet he will like call me afterwards and say I listened to the episode you know and, and let me know um and because of that it was a kind of stand in for an invisible audience member that might not have some frame of reference for whatever artist is on the show and whatever musical concept they might be talking about. So my parents, <laughs> no offense to my parents, don't have any frame of reference for any of this stuff. So I could think about, you know, well, what needs to be explained and what needs to be demonstrated with music? You know, like, when do you need to really lean into the explanation part of this so that it doesn't feel too abstract or too too esoteric? While at the same time you know, I didn't want it to sound like it was dumbed down. For, for the people who were ma- who were on the show, I didn't want it to feel like they didn't get to talk about their ideas and their experiences in the language in which they think about them. If they think about it in terms of like, oh, in chord progressions, and they say, well, I wanted to go from, you know, from that to the relative minor because of what... And, and there comes a moment where I'm like, well, do I have to explain what that is? You know, this is an instance where having the music, having that kind of show-and-tell format with their words and the music really helps because sometimes you don't need to explain what the words are at all. You can just play the music because all the words are, are an attempt to describe the music. So then I can just play the music and don't have to worry about the description at all.
1: In March of 2016, you launched a second podcast titled The West Wing Weekly. In each episode, you and actor Joshua Molina, who played Will Bailey on the show, discuss an episode of the West Wing, which for young ones listening is the (laughs) early 2000s television drama set in a fictional White House with Martin Sheen as the president. It's a fantastic show. (laughs) Why a podcast about the West Wing?
2: You know, I had been trying to do this TV project. The TV project that I mentioned in, in 2013 was something that I was doing with Josh. We had made this game show and we had sold it and, you know, made the pilot And then it was just kind of languishing in this weird TV limbo um, for for a long time. It wasn't getting on the air, it wasn't getting to the next point. And then the people who had bought it, their company got bought by a different studio. It was just, it it was just-
1: (laughs) Sounds exhausting. (laughs) It really was,
2: it really was. And it was my first experience uh, really in trying to make work in a medium that was so disconnected from being able to do it yourself the way that, that I had learned, you know, with everything that I'd done before. You really just can't make a TV show on your own. You, you just can't.
1: Yeah, it's like branding.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so while we were kind of waiting for the coin to land on whether or not we were going to get to actually do this or not, um, I said to Josh, I was like, you know, I've been making Song Exploder now for a couple of years and I've really enjoyed it and it's been really fun and it's a way to put something out into the world that we could actually do ourselves. And I think there might be an audience for it, you know, just like I thought there might be an audience for Song Exploder, just based on like my own instincts of what I really wanted. And what I really wanted was a discussion of the West Wing, something that could kind of exalt its highs and also kind of criticize some of the things that had always bothered me about the show, a show that I love, but there were definitely flaws and and things. And I wanted to be able to talk about both of those things, but I also wanted to do it with a little bit of the DNA of Song Exploder, where you have the perspective of somebody who was actually involved in the show. Um, Josh wasn't on the show for all seven seasons. He came in later, but he was on the show. He And he had worked with Aaron Sorkin, with the creator of the show, you know, on Sports Night before that and Few Good Men before that. So he would have this insider perspective that I thought would be really interesting. And it took a little while, but but I convinced him to do it.
1: How did you get Lin Manuel Miranda to write and perform a West Wing themed <laughs> rap for the podcast intro music?
2: Well, I'm not sure how he and Josh knew each other, but they they knew each other somehow. And Lin Manuel is a big West Wing fan. He sometimes would tweet about it or like reply to our, uh, you know, the the account that I'd set up for our podcast, our Twitter account. He would like reply to that, and I was like, "What?" And he would you know have a comment about stuff, or he would post a West Wing, you know, gif in in reaction or something. And then I and then when I heard Hamilton for the first time I heard the soundtrack, I heard all these West Wing references in the music. So by the end of the first year of doing the show, I had made this this like sort of extended instrumental track of our intro music. The original idea was to do a supercut of all of these sort of like moments of Martin Sheen saying President Bartlett's catchphrase, which is what's next, which is how we would end every episode of the podcast. We'd say, what's next? And so I I went to just clip all of the different times when he said it. And then I, I realized they had a little bit of a cadence and musicality to them. And I started to arrange them with this remix of our intro track. You know, I'd been making beats for rappers, you know, for, for a few years. And I was like, oh, this kind of works in a way where it could be like, that could be the hook. And then there's room for, you know, 16 bars <laughs> in between. And so I made that track and I said to Josh, I said, is there any chance that, you know, you would ask Lynn if, if he'd want to rap over this? And, um, and then it took a little bit of pushing, but then Josh was like, okay, cause this was at the, the absolute height of Hamilton success. Josh was like, what are you thinking? Like, wh- why would he res- even respond to this? But he sent it to him. And then I think 11 days later, we had a final, like a finished track sent back to us.
1: That's, it's just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda also stars along with the glorious Tommy Kail <laughs> and Alex Lacamoire in a brand new episode of season two of your Netflix series, Song Exploder. Congratulations. Thank you. Rishi, it's just an extraordinary accomplishment. And just congratulations on such a spectacular
2: show. Oh, thanks so much.
1: You've had many offers to bring Song Exploiter to television over the years. What made you decide to do it now and with
2: Netflix? The now of it is really uh, just a matter of like, that's how long it took. (laughs) It took so long to make the show and bring it to life. I think we pitched the show, and by we, I mean myself and Morgan Neville, who is the filmmaker who I partnered with on, on the production of the show. Um, We pitched it to Netflix in April of 2018 and um, you know, and then the show debuted in October of 2020. So it was a really long time for it to come out. It's not so much that I chose a moment so much as it's just like, that's, that's how long it took. The moment that chose you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, There was a moment where at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018 or so, where I kind of switched gears from, saying no, like turning down invitations to make Song Exploder into a series or adapting it um, and change from sort of reacting to those things and instead try to imagine what it would be if I started from a blank piece of paper. And well, and the other thing that I had to do was remove the obstacle of my own practicality. Uh, In
1: it, what way? What do you mean?
2: Well, I'd been so used to... This kind of DIY mentality for everything that when I'm coming up with ideas, my first instinct is to reach for something that is within my grasp. Like Song Exploder, I was like, well, this is the idea. And also it's something that I can make. Like I have all the tools and same thing with like the way that I made music, you know, okay, I've bought the recorder. I bought the microphone. I have this keyboard. I have this guitar and I have this drum kit. What can I make out of these tools? But I wanted to see if I could get rid of that kind of pragmatic instinct and say, all right, well, the way my friend put it, my friend who had directed Save the Date, he was making a show with Netflix called Everything Sucks. And I had done the music for it. And so I'd been sort of involved in all the conversations and stuff. And he said, imagine you were to do the show with Netflix and imagine, just, just imagine you had an infinite budget what would the show look like then? Cause he knew I was kind of like a little bit bummed because I felt like none of these ideas that were coming my way were right. And yet I also felt like if I didn't do something, somebody else would. And it started to feel like Song Exploder was starting to get a little bit swallowed up by these other outlets that were doing kind of like Song Exploder-esque series, especially in video, you know, like the New York Times and uh, Rolling Stone and Genius, all these different websites were doing these kind of like, high budget, I don't know if versions is right, but that's what it felt like to me. So anyway, he said, just imagine what you could do if you you had infinite budget. And then I wrote my own presentation and that actually got me excited about making a show.
1: Lynn, Tommy and Alex talk and deconstruct, wait for it, Mm -hmm. Aaron Burr's anthem in the music Hamilton in their episode of Song Exploder on television. Lynn has said that Wait for it is perhaps the best song he's ever written. And I was like, what? What about Helpless? What about Blow Us All Away? Which every time I hear, I can't help but just projectile cry. Um, <laughs> did you believe him when he said that?
2: He and Tommy Kale did an episode of the West Wing Weekly, like a special episode. And while we were discussing that, you know, they were going to come to my house and we, we were going to record it. And he said, you know, maybe if there's time, also, in addition, like me and Alex can Do an episode about wait for it. You think? (laughs) It's like oh my god. But then there wasn't time. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, there wasn't time, but he had already volunteered which song it was that he wanted to do. You know, I didn't have to have that moment in the conversation. You were just like, well, what song is it going to be?
1: So interesting to get a sense of what people think about their own work and what is best about their own work. Both the episode on the podcast and the episode on television are remarkable in really understanding the process, the collaboration, the the way in which Lynn and Tommy and Alex all work together to create this, this anthem. What are the biggest differences between producing the podcast and producing the television show?
2: I think the biggest difference is probably, well, certainly, The fact that you have something to see on screen and there is a there is a need to feed people's attention spans, especially in a context of something like Netflix and making the kind of show that we ended up making. It's not a sit down interview talk show. And it was never, you know, never intended to be again, because, you know, in my dream version, I wasn't going to be in it at all.
1: I love the fact that you're in it. (laughs) Rishi, I really do. I mean, it's interesting because you talk about the intimacy of the artist in the podcast, but I think that what keeps the integrity of the intimacy in the television show is having you a part of it.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, that's what Morgan's argument was, and I didn't buy it at first, but um, I thought that for the same reason it made sense and made something unique in the podcast to take me out of it, it would work in the TV show. Morgan pointed out that Actually, you know, taking the interviewer out, putting the interviewer behind the camera or something like that was not unique. That's actually the typical format of documentaries. And so it wouldn't feel intimate. Um, and what would feel special and unique would be if the audience could feel like they are witnessing what was by nature an intimate conversation.
1: Well, I also think that a great interviewer asks questions that the audience is either thinking about or wants to know about and and you are able to do that you capture that moment where you're like oh ask that and then you're asking it (laughs) while somebody is thinking it so um do you like doing the podcast and the tv show equally or do you like one more than the other
2: well it's conceivable for me to do an entire episode of a podcast without any outside interference you know or without uh, any outside input potentially um and that's just not the case with the TV show. And I think that I learned so much by getting to collaborate in those ways with the, with the TV show. But I like being able to do both, for sure, because what I want most, I think what my brain craves most is newness and um, new experiences. And one of the things that helps with the podcast is that like every episode is a different artist, a different song, which presents different challenges and different ways of having to edit and think about a story. By doing the TV show too, I got to think about all of those things, plus all of the unique challenges of an, an entirely new medium that I'd never worked in before. Um, and that was really exciting. And having to figure out how to translate what felt instinctual to me, to somebody else, to an editor. You know, the fact that I wasn't the one editing, it, where editing was such a part of the show, that was such an interesting challenge you know, to my communication skills, to my to the strength of what the show was, to the ideas that the artists presented, um, I'm I'm definitely glad I got to do both. But uh, I'll say that the podcast is for sure easier to make and easier on me spiritually. Partly just because I don't have to I don't have to see myself.
1: Mm, yeah, I, I I understand. That's one of the things I like so much about doing a podcast is I don't have to look at myself. Yes. I don't even like to listen to them once they're out. <laughs> yeah, the show. Debuted with four episodes on Netflix, mm-hmm. and then you have season two that's just dropped with four more episodes, one of which is the remarkable episode about Wait For It by Lynn manuel Miranda with Thomas Cale and Alex Lacamoire. Do you see doing more? Do you have any sense of whether you'll be doing more episodes?
2: It's another thing that's entirely out of my hands. You know, it's really, it's just... Uh, uh, oh, that
1: must be so hard for a control freak. <laughs> it is.
2: It really is. Yeah, because I, I don't even know what, what the factors are that are going to go into the decision. It's just one day I'll find out whether we're making more episodes or not.
1: You talked about newness and, and loving newness and needing newness. And I, I totally understand that. If Song Exploder, the podcast, and the television show, and the West Wing Weekly weren't enough to keep you busy, you've also created two more popular podcasts. One is The Partners, and the other is Home Cooking with chef and writer Samin Nostrat. You said you've come to the realization over the years of making Song Exploder that what was driving the way that you interviewed was feelings. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that more in relation to your newer shows and how that notion of interviewing with feelings has manifested in these other podcasts?
2: You know, I think there's a version of Song Exploder that could exist that's very technical to the point of almost being clinical, you know, almost like instruction manual for a song. Um, But that wasn't interesting to me. Like for me, it was really about the human part of, you know, about using your imagination, harnessing some idea and then turning it into something. And as I started to do the podcast more and more, I realized like, yeah, that thing that I wanted was for them to talk about their feelings. I wanted them to talk about how they felt about this experience and how they felt about this sound. And like, for me, what was the most exciting moments in the, in an episode was when someone talked about what they wanted somebody to feel or what they themselves felt from something that they had made or something like that. Um, because it felt more universal. And making a song started to feel like a little bit of a stand-in for any kind of creative pursuit, or even just the feeling of possibility. And so I started to kind of like edit towards that and, and lean into that. And, th- and I started to enjoy that so much. So Partners was an exercise in just focusing on that part, just doing the, the, the feelings part. It's dialogue between two people, the thing the thing that it shares in, in Song Exploder is that, okay, there's no song that they're creating, but the thing that they've made is this partnership between them, this kind of like intangible glue between them that gets formed, you know, that bond. How do you make that? I had this thesis for the show, which was that every partnership, no matter what kind of partnership, if it's successful, then theirs is a love story. I wanted to basically make a podcast that was all love stories and kind of edit in that way without being too overt about it.
1: You have four podcasts now and a television show. How are you feeling about your burgeoning multimedia (laughs)
2: empire? (laughs) Um, I have mixed feelings about it because all of it really comes from a pivot away from music, which was the thing that I really wanted to do and still want to do. I haven't put out a record since I started Song Exploder. I still want to, so it's a, it's a little bit strange, I think, to have so many projects that are different from the project that I intended to do. And then to like be making more, you know, like starting home cooking is like a, yet another podcast and it's like, well, but I haven't started another record, you know? Um, but I know that, I guess with those shows, I felt like there, I knew there was an audience for them in a way that I don't know that I always have the confidence uh, about my music.
1: Mm, confidence or courage.
2: Exactly. I've I've been thinking about that quote so much because I've been thinking (laughs) about my next year. So my next year is going to be different because the West Wing Weekly is over, the home cooking is over. For now, until further notice, the TV show is done. You know, that might be the end of that. And so, you know, maybe it's a chance for me to finally try and make another record but it's not something that I have a lot of confidence in so it's going to require some level of courage to just be like well I'm just going to do this and and just make it regardless.
1: Rishi the last thing I want to talk with you about is an interview you did on the podcast 10 things that scare me Hmm. and I was actually really deliberating about whether or not to ask this but you've brought up the idea of nostalgia several times over our interview. So I think it would be a nice way to close it out. Okay. In that episode, you stated this. I always want to be in a never-ending embrace and having a great stimulating conversation. And if I'm being really honest, every single moment that I don't have that is a little bit painful. When I was growing up, I felt like I had that. When I think of my family, I think of the four of us, me and my sister, my mom and my dad on a Friday night piled up on the couch in the house where I grew up watching a movie. My mom would make delicious snacks and it was just cozy and comfortable and fun. I think my entire adult life, I've been trying to recreate that feeling.
2: Hmm.
1: Rishi, do you think that with Song Exploder that maybe you've done that?
2: I don't think so. Not not with Song Exploder. <laughs> I, I think I, I have this feeling of wanting to have, have that experience. Um, I end up living with that interview and those stories for so long. And I am trying to edit in a way that's not just clean presentation of the story, but also sort of presents the artist and their story in it as compelling and lovable as a, of a way as possible. That if I've done it well, by the end, I've kind of fallen in love with them a little. And so, you know, by the end, I'm like, this is my buddy. This is my friend. You know, I've spent all yeah. this time with them. I've thought so much about them. And unfortunately, it's very rare that that actually ends up being the case that I, I do become friends with the people who I'm, who I'm interviewing or who I'm talking to on the show. I would probably love to be friends with all of them. I think the thing that is at the heart of that feeling, that thing that I'm trying to recreate, is some feeling of closeness, like a mutual closeness. You know, and while I'm getting closer to the people I'm talking to, I don't know that they're feeling that so much in return. There have been a couple of instances where where people have and they've, you know, they've written to me after the podcast comes out and they say, like, you know, I listened to the thing that you made and I can't believe it. And I've formed friendships or relationships from that. But it's vastly, vastly, vastly the minority of instances. It's uh, most of the time. You know, they just kind of go on and we just go our separate ways.
1: Well, I actually think that um, as a listener and a fan, that never ending conversation is one that you're giving your audience. Hmm. So thank you for that.
2: <laughs> Thanks so much.
1: <laughs> Rishi Keish, Kira Wang, thank you so much for making so much magic. And thank you for joining me today on
2: Design Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, you know, I partly wanted to come on the show so that it might introduce Song Exploders to some people, but really, I was coming on here for research. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to learn from you, and uh, you know, get to understand what it's like to be on the other side of one of your interviews, uh, which I've listened to so many, and you know, it, it's uh, it feels like a real privilege and luxury uh, to get to have this conversation with you.
1: Oh, it's such an honor. You can hear Song Exploder, the podcast on any podcast app, and you can watch Song Exploder, the TV series on Netflix. And you can find out more at songexploder.net. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced for the Ted family of podcasts by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.